Well, today we start a series of sorts, and I say of sorts because it's not really a true series in that we're not really following any set pattern in terms of um, what we have done in recent past, which is um, um, concentrate on a, a book of scripture like we did just recently. And in fact, the banner is still up there, and I kept it up there because I thought, you know, that's just a nice, a nice thing to, for us to be reminded of, that Jesus Christ the lamb wins. He hasn't already won, just won, you know, at, in the, at the cross. I'm going to take this off now. I can't breathe. Thank you. But he continues to win in our lives today. And, and that's a good thing for us to, re, to be reminded of. But our series really focuses on uh, what you have, what, you know, the things that concern you today. So let me know every week. Um, every week I send out the communication. Uh, you will get a, uh, a URL link, and then I, I would like for you to click on that link and tell me what you would like for me to uh, preach on the following week. It's a challenge that I'm willing to, uh, uh, to answer by faith, and my promise to all of you is that I will go back home every, every week after Sabbath, and uh, I will study, and I'll... Uh, and, and I'll uh, prepare a sermon in, uh, in response to your, your questions. So that is the uh, sermon topic for, uh, that we have throughout, that we will be having throughout this entire summer and even beyond. And we've started calling it uh, Through the Jesus Lens Topics of Interest and Concern for God's People. Today's sermon um, focuses on uh, the Christian response or a Jesus-centered response to the pandemic. The whole creation groans a Jesus-centered response to the pandemic. We've been living with this pandemic for, it seems like, forever. I, can't, I, I almost cannot remember the world before this pandemic, uh, pandemic hit. And it seems like our world has changed so drastically, and I'm afraid that it will be changed forever. And that there will, be, there will be a new normal after this uh, has come and gone. But, you know, outbreaks, pandemics uh, are not, uh, pandemic is not new. There have been, and there have been uh, pandemics throughout the history of humankind. Um, and I've he- I have here in front of me the 10 worst, the 10 of the, 10 of the worst pandemics in history. The last one of note uh, was... Um, uh, happened uh, not too long ago. We've all been, most of us have been alive uh, uh, when this hit. And you all remember the HIV and the AIDS pandemic, which reached its peak in two, between 2005 to 2012, killing up to now, killing upwards to 36 million precious human souls. First identified in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1976, the HIV and AIDS uh, virus has uh, uh, truly proven itself as a global pandemic, killing more than 36 million people since 1981. And currently, there are between 31 to 35 million people living with HIV. The vast majority of those are in, this, in the sub-Saharan desert, uh, Africa, where about 5% of the population is infected, roughly 25 million people. It's, it's mind-boggling to think that such things are happening. 
Yes, the whole creation has been groaning for a very long time. Ever since the rebellion, that great rebellion we tried to describe for you in the previous uh, sermon series. And then there was the flu pandemic of 1968, which, uh, had, a, which had a death toll of about a million. Another Asian flu virus in 1956, between 1956 to 1958. And I'm just highlighting here the top 10. There, have, there, have been, there had been many more in between those top 10. And this one uh, had a death toll of 2 million. And one that probably uh, is the biggest so far um, in the modern age happened in 1918. It's, it's often called or referred to as the Spanish flu. The death toll between 20 to 50 million. Amazing. And of the 500 million people infected in the 1918 pandemic, the mortality rate was between 10% to 20%, with up to 25 million deaths in the first 25 weeks alone. And so on and so forth. Sixth cholera pandemic of 1910 and 1911, the flu pandemic of 1889 and 1890, going back down farther, farther back into history. The third cholera pandemic of 1852 and 1860, one million death. The Black Death, 1346 to 1353, that one decimated roughly 25% of the world population of the time. Between 75 to 200 million of that bubonic plague. The whole creation has been groaning for a very long time. The plague of Justinian, 541 AD and 542 AD, 25 million. The Antonine Plague, 165 AD, 5 million, mostly within the, uh, the uh, uh, or around the um, Mediterranean basin, uh, which essentially decimated the entire Roman Empire, which historians uh, say contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, to the fall of, of the vaunted Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, five million, and it decimated, it decimated the ranks of the, the, uh, of, of the Roman army so that it could no longer withstand all of those attacks from the Germanic tribes up north and attacks from the east. All these things tell us what we already know, that the whole creation continues to groan and will continue to groan until God puts an end to this um, problem of evil in this world. And so today, I want us to focus on that one question. How do we then respond to this groaning of creation? And specifically, how do we respond in a, a Jesus-centered way? How do we respond to this pandemic that is still afflicting all of us? And of course, as we can all imagine, you can all imagine or we can all imagine, we are already tired of it. It's not fun wearing masks every single time you go out, get out the doors of, from your house and, you know, be at church and wearing masks and you can't even shake people's hands. I feel badly for those, the huggers among us. They're dying. <laughs> Rhonda. Rhonda is dying. My girl is dying. 
She wants to hug her friends. And, and I can empathize with, with all of you. We're all groaning. Nobody has not experienced a time when you, you're questioning, why is this hap- are these things happening? And when we turn on our, the, you know, the media, uh, the various media that we have available to us, much of, the, um, much of the discussion, much of the questions that are being asked have to do with the why. Why is this happening? Who is to blame? And all the conspiracy theories that we've heard and continue to hear about you know, the conspiracy of bringing this to the United States to decimate all of us here, and so on and so forth. The 5G um, I don't know much about that 5G, except that uh, purportedly uh, that the virus could travel through the 5G network. Um, some, you know, some of these conspiracy theories are laughable, but they are really part of the expression of the concerns of you and me to make sense of this nonsensical world sometimes that we live in. And we live in, the, in, the, uh, in an age of pandemic, and we don't know often what to do. We're tired of it, but we cannot escape it. There's no place for us to go. And we're tired of staying home. And we're tired of not having potlucks, of not having Sabbath schools. We're tired of not being able to just be ourselves. We're tired of not being able to just be with our friends. We have to pick a few of our friends, a few, a small circle of friends to just hang around with, just Hoping against hope, perhaps, that, you know, we would lessen the chances of us getting the virus. And we, and we are rebelling, many of us, including myself sometimes. Rebelling against all of the, the things that are being told us that we need to do. To stay, you know, apart from each other, six feet apart or, or more. To wear masks. And I hear that... There, the chances of the church just closing down again are very high. Where do we turn to in Scripture? Well, we turn today to the book of Romans, to the uh, watershed or the apex of everything that Paul has written and try to seek to understand how we can respond or continue to respond to this pandemic in a Jesus-centered way. Because after all, Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, and we must follow his lead. So I beg you to um, turn to, uh, your, 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 in your Bible, to turn to Romans chapter 8. Arguably, the, uh, the, um, the apex of, uh, or the, the, the watershed uh, uh, mark of all of the writings of, of Paul and we've read this, and some of you have even, I visited Robert uh, uh, Wagenlitner uh, this, this past week, and he quoted to me the first six verses of, of, uh, of Romans chapter 8 by memory, and I felt embarrassed because I haven't. We are familiar with Romans chapter 8. We are familiar with the first part of Romans chapter 8, and we're familiar with the last part of Romans chapter 8. What we're not familiar with is what we see in between and what we're going to talk about today. The first part of it, we're very familiar with. Therefore, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You remember that? And then, 
to, to end this beautiful chapter, um, we, we have these beautiful verses, for I am convinced, verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, that alone, we could stop with that alone, and that would be more than sufficient to see us through these pan- this, this time of pandemic. But there is that middle part, and that middle part begs to be understood. What does Paul mean when he says the whole creation groans? Let's read. A portion of the middle chapters, I'm going I'm to start with verse 18. So go ahead and pull up your, your devices, your Bible, whatever it is, and read along with me quietly as I read up here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul says, are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to to his purpose. What we have in this text is a um, how should I describe it? Um, a mysterious um, kind of a, a mysterious thing, really, about the groaning of the crea- of creation. And how you and me are groaning right along with creation. And how the Spirit groans right along with us in our groaning within the groaning of creation. We have three groanings going on in here. The groaning of the Spirit inside the church, inside you and me in our hearts. Who in turn are groaning under the sustained weight of all of these things that are happening before us. And then because... In the larger sense, the whole creation groans. And in the past, as we, you know, as we, my own understanding of this text is in the past, 
have, has led me to believe that this groaning has more to do with God trying to make sense of our, you know, of, of our pain. And, and, you know, and, and, and while we are, like, like described, what was described to us today by, by grace, as she groaned inwardly in her spirit, praying, and I remember, Grace, when you shared that, uh, um, that prayer request with us, and suddenly the pandemic to me ceased to be just something that I understood to be out there. Suddenly it hit home to me. And I remember, Grace, that day when you shared that text, that I cried some. And I cried for you and your sister and your brother-in-law. And I remember the 10 of us in that string pretty much doing the same thing, working very hard to, to pray, to groan with you as you groan for your brother-in-law and your sister and the hell that they were going through and as your sister was gro- go- going through the whole thing and groaning themselves. There is a sense in which this text tells us that it's inevitable for us to be groaning with the rest of creation because after all, we are part of that creation and after all, we're still in this world. Didn't Jesus Christ pray for us in John chapter 17 when he said, Lord, I pr- Father, I pray not that you would take them out of the world. Because of that, we do still live in the world and we are affected by the world. We are affected by everything that goes on in the world as we are being affected right now by this COVID-19 pandemic. We groan. We try to make sense of it. And Scripture tells us that it is okay for us to groan. As a matter of fact, it's the, it's the most Christian thing to groan. Under the weight of such a pandemic as we're experiencing now. And in your groaning, there are places in Scripture that we can go to, to groan to, uh, to, you know, uh, to, to, to go to God and, and to pour our souls out to God. And that place would be the Psalms. The Psalms and all of those places that we, we, that we see in the Psalms where we can groan and we can, we can plead with God, Lord, to help us to understand what's going on here, what is happening here. And the promise to us is that as we groan, in our hearts and we're unable to even put words into our groaning prayer doesn't necessarily have to be always you know verbal god will understand the promise to us is really it's, it's such a beautiful promise when you groan to god in your pain and as you also assume some of the pain of the people around you that you love who you care for as you groan in your spirit not even knowing how to pray the promise is the Spirit will groan right along with you because, you know, the Spirit, God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, feel the pain of this world that He created not to be in this way. Can you imagine what it's like, what it must be like for God to be God of the universe, to be God of this world because He created it? To be God of you and me because he created you and me. To see all the things that are happening in our midst. So when Paul says that the spirit groans right along with us, it is a, wonder, it's, it's a comfort thing. It's a, it's a very comforting thing to know, to understand 
that the God of the universe, the triune God of the universe, identifies with our needs and makes sense of the things that are not, that are not making sense in our lives today. But there is something more going on here. Not just the groaning within the groaning within the groaning. The identification of God with his people so that this people, his people can endure almost like stoically everything. You know, and, and, and it seems like uh, having read uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 28, that's what it seems to be communicating. And it's, it can be a wonderful thing. We know that all things work together for good. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But there is more to this text. This text has actually uh, been a, a little bit of a controversial text. And I believe that we need to take a look at this verse, this specific verse, to understand how you and I could respond even better than we are already responding to this, to this pandemic. Because what I believe what this text, what Paul is, is saying to us here, is not so much that we are to be stoically resigned to whatever happens around us, knowing that God will work everything out at the end for his glory and for his purpose. There is something here that is a lot more, I think, active, then then meets the eye. Here's how the, uh, the King James words this classic text. And before I go there, I might as well tell you that there's really two, there are two issues with this text. First of all, in the way it is worded in the original, it's very, it's, it's sometimes, there are three possibilities as to what the subject is. And I'm not going to go into the details of the, you know, the, the, the language or stuff like that. Only, only to, to tell you that the subject here, the subject here could be any one of three. And it would still be okay. <laughs> it, I mean, trans, if, you're, if you're going to translate it, uh, there are three possibilities. Uh, the, the first possibility is what the King James uh, tells us. And what uh, my, scripture, my Bible translation, which is the NIV, also follows. And a few other modern translations, translations follow. And, and, and here, they've translated it with uh, all things being the, being the subject. And so they say, and we know that all things work together for good. And that would be the Greek word for synerge. That synerge is a compound word. There's two words connected there. You can see it. Sin. Sin means with. And erge. Erge, or erg, is, um, is, is, is the word work. So work with. Okay? So the first issue here is the subject. What is the subject? And the, the, and the, and the second issue is, is what does that synerge, what does that synerge really mean? And this is how the King James translators translated it, which has come down through the ages, through, you know, five centuries of translation for us. And it does give us a lot of comfort, indeed, to know that God will work everything out. All things will work together for good. I can't tell you how many times I have, I've gone to this text. I remember going to this text specifically that night when I sat, when I sat in the darkness of that uh, uh, parking lot outside the hospital where my father in ICU was languishing for his life. 
And I remember going to this text and quoting this text and repeating this text to myself to help me go through my own groanings at that time. But other, other translation, translations think otherwise, that you know, the subject here is not so much all things, but God. And here's how they say it, how they translate it. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So far, so, far, so good. God most likely would be the right, you know, the, the, the right subject of this, of, of, this, uh, uh, of this verse. Why? Because we know prior to that in verse 27 that God is the subject or else also the Holy Spirit himself. When we say God, God the Father. Either God the Father is the subject or the Holy Spirit is the subject here. Either way, it's fine. But there's another problem here, and the problem here is how do you translate that word synerge? Because synerge is not the work, it's not the word used in, New, in the New Testament for working. That's another word altogether. We're not going to go there. What this word communicates is working together with someone. How do you translate that? Are we to passively rely on God? Simply that God will put everything, you know, put a silver lining on everything that happens to us. Yes, there's truth to that, and we're not about to say that's false. But that's not what this text is saying. What is this text saying? So I've taken to uh, translating it this way. We know that in all things, God or the Spirit, either subject would be fine in this, in this, uh, in this uh, verse, and if we believe in the, as we do, in the triune God, Father, God, and Holy Spirit, there's no, there's no, we might as well be splitting hair, right? So let's just say, it reads this way, we know that in all things, God, or the Spirit, to bring about what is good, works with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Do you see how this, and I'm not, this is not verbal gymnastics. And uh, by the way, I have, you know, uh, N.T. Wright also to credit for, for, for this as well to help me also, uh, uh, a New Testament scholar. So this is not something that I just came up with. I'm just trying to tell you that, you know, uh, it's, I'm not dreaming. We know that in all things, God or the Holy Spirit or let's just say all, all of God, Father, Son, to bring about what is good in his creation at any particular time works with you and me to bring about the good that he desires in every situation, to bring about his purpose for the goodness and the restoration of his creation, which means that the groaning that is being explained here to us in Romans chapter 10, it's a groaning not only to make sense, not only to feel, because we feel the pain, but the groaning to do something about it. For the sake of God, in Jesus Christ, to be active participants in bringing about what is good in this, what is good in God's eyes in this time of pandemic. Which means... That the Jesus response would be, the Jesus-centered response to pandemic 
It's not simply for us to endure. The response is missions-centered. The response is God is saying, you are my, my hands and my feet. You are my mouthpieces to bring about the good in your circle of friends, in your family, in your city, to make sure, to make sure that my kingdom shows up in the darkest places of this pandemic. Now it makes everything, you know, it, it, it throws everybody for a loop, doesn't it? Because now we can understand better that, you know, perhaps our own small discomfort in being asked to wear this, and I'm tired of it. It's not such a bad thing after all. When we think of the fact that God wants us to bring something good to come out of the situation we find ourselves in, what would that be? I, Dale Dunavant, our, our former um, evangelism director at the conference, is a Facebook friend of mine, and he sent me this, uh, this uh, um, he shared with me this picture of two individuals facing each other, and, and so I went and shared it, and I probably, as soon as I shared it, I, I knew that uh, I was making myself a partisan on one side of things, and, and sure enough, I got... You know, what was the picture? Well, it was like two, two girls. Um, and the first picture is three pictures of the same two girls. Two, one, two, three. They're facing each other with no masks. And then, and then the picture has, you know, the, the, the fume of, you know, whatever is coming out from each other's mouth. This is what happens when you don't wear, you know. And then the next picture, only one of them is wearing one. And then, you know, it's showing what the consequence of that would be in terms of you spewing whatever, you know, germ you, you might have in you to the other person. And then the third picture has both of them not, I mean, having, having, having masks. Um, so I, I, and, and so um, I shared that and I said, I get it. And I, and I shared it to all my friends and beyond. And oh boy, the responses that I got. Walked right into it. So, to the extent where I decided I'm not going to respond to a single one of them, because I, why do we have to make this political in any way? If we ask the question, if we focus on this text and we say, we know that in all things God, to bring about what is good in this pandemic time, if he, if he works with those who love him to bring about the good, in the situation, then perhaps you and me would be willing to do things we are not willing to do otherwise. Then perhaps we would see this pandemic not as something we would just endure through it, but as an opportunity for mission. To share the love of God however you can, however difficult it is. To tell them that God loves them. And by your presence, by you showing up somehow in their lives, somehow or other, however that, whatever that looks like, you are communicating to them that they are not being abandoned by God. That you are God's representative to them. You know, in my small, in, in my small way, that's what I've been trying to do. 
Do you realize how hard it is to, to have been preaching in this sanctuary where there was only me, there was only uh, uh, Scott and Mark? Sometimes Brian and sometimes Jim. It's very hard. And to minister to you in the midst of pandemic, it is very hard. So I, I started, you know, lo looking for ways to, what are some ways that I could uh, communicate the goodness of God, the love of God to those around me? And I realized, you know, it's been staring me in the face all this time. My, 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 I love to bake bread. And I used to refuse to, uh, uh, to use bread makers because I thought it would be cheating to break bread that way. So I used to knead my own bread, you know, like the, the good old way. And you have to wait and you have to, you know, all those things. And, and, I, and I did that for a while. And, my, and, and, I, and I would give it away and bless your heart to those of you that responded and said, tasty bread. But I really think you, you meant, but boy, this was a brick of a bread. Right, Lisa? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so what I decided, and, and, and my, my, in my family, there's a joke that runs in the family. You know, the day that daddy learns to bake like grandma is the day that daddy has arrived. And you know, grandma's, grandma taught me her technique. She uses bread maker to, 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 you know, to make the dough, prepare the dough. And then she says, do this afterwards. And I did all of that. It's a secret, so I won't share it with you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not a secret. It's very easy. And so I decided to do that. I said, you know, what if I could just show up? It would be a lot better, a lot, a lot better for people, and a lot easier for people to welcome me with my mask on when I have a bread to offer them. And then I could just spray it with, you know, with alcohol and hand it to them. And so my sister-in-law helped me out and said, you know, so, so a ministry was formed, uh, a very inconsequential, really. It's just, you know, it's just little me. I, have no, I don't have a voice that carries far and wide, but I have my bread. Yeah, I, sp I don't spray the bread. <laughs> I spray the bag that contains the bread. And so... Between myself and my family and my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law, we all connived to put this together. And one day, my sister-in-law puts up a, uh, an announcement on, uh, where is this? Sorry, next door. The pastor of the Fuller, of the, of the not Fullerton, <laughs> of the Auburn SDA Church is wanting to bake bread for those in need. Those of, are there, is there anyone here that would be willing to part ways to do, donate their, their bread maker? And that's how we got four free bread makers. And now, so I have four bread makers for free. I was going to buy them. And then, and so after that, my, my mother-in-law lends me t her two. And so I now have six. They're in, they're in the fellowship hall by the kitchen. Every Tuesday, I bake bread. And then I go around. If I haven't reached your house yet, just wait. I'll be there soon. And what am I doing? I'm following Romans 8.28. The best way I know how. To be, in some small ways, God's hands and feet at this time. And to focus my energies not on complaining, not on the why, 
Why is this happening? Why am I being told to do this and not to do this? I hate it. And you know, who, who better to, to complain than we Americans? Because we love our personal freedom. But how small are our own discomforts in relation, in relation to the possibility of moving away from asking why to asking what is God doing here that I can do with him to bring about his good creation under you know, this, this, the circumstances that I'm in. And that is the beauty of Romans chapter, chapter 8, verse 28. That is what Paul means when he says, you know, that, the, uh, uh, that God's people, let me see, what does it say again? That uh, um, the creation itself, uh, that, that we are, that the, 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 the world or the universe is waiting for you and me to be revealed. This is not, this is not a case where, you know, uh, Paul is saying, just wait. God is coming soon. Just hang in there long enough. Sit tight. And if you want to do nothing, that's fine. I'm, it's, it's, it's that close. The revelation of the children of God have to do with working with him here and now to bring about the good that God wants in his creation now. Because Jesus Christ, why, why do we do that? Because, because the new creation of God has been launched, has been inaugurated, when? At the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the argument of God to the entire universe is this, there, is, there now exists, there now exists in this sinful world a new way of doing things. And it exists in everyone that calls me their Lord. And so, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we find that beautiful text where Paul says, if there is anyone in Christ, there, he says, is a new creation. There in that place where that person is, there, there, you can see what I mean by how things ought to be, what things ought to be like. Where did they get this idea from? Well, of course, they got it from Jesus Christ. This is not just, this innovation is not something that the church came up on its own. They were merely following the lead of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to, um, let's go to John chapter 9. Verses 1 to 3. Here, I want to show you, and I'm going to go through three texts here right now, very, very fast uh, in succession, just to, let, to tell you. Um, that in, the, the, the innovation here <clears throat> that, the, that, the, uh, that the, the church um, started to carry out uh, is really coming from Jesus Christ himself. And, and that is where you know, when something bad happens in God's creation, when we see before our eyes creation groaning in some small or big ways, there will be time to ask why, who caused this or what caused this, or even to lay blame. But while there's work to be done, 
the, the better question really is not to ask why, but to ask what is God doing and how can we partner with God? And so in this um, text where we have the problem here, the problem here is the groaning of one man who was born, born blind. Take a look at how Jesus Christ addresses the question of why. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's the why question. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. In other words, saying, look, stop asking the question why. There's a better question to be asked. And the, and the question is, how can God's name be glorified? What is God going to do? It's a forward-looking thing. What is God going to do because of this person groaning in pain of blindness, in the pain of blindness from his, from his birth? And what does Jesus Christ do after, after he reframes the whole thing? What does he do? He goes and does it. He heals this person from blindness. Another text is found in uh, John chapter 11. You, we are familiar with this one. Uh, the, the raising of Lazarus. Then Mary, when she came uh, where Jesus was, was and saw him, fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, you see, He's already blaming the Lord. She's already blaming the Lord. My brother would not have died. In other words, he's asked, she's asking the question, why did you wait so long? Did you not love my brother enough for you to have showed up four, day, four days earlier? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have, you, where have you laid him? Then they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened their, the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Another why question. And Jesus Christ shrugs off their why question. And shifts to the what? Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst send me. When he had, he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus Christ was not look, about looking back to lay blame on anyone. I suppose he could blame Satan all day long. He did not concentrate on that. He was moving forward. And he did what needed to be done. Jesus, in both instances, shoots down the backward-looking why questions and reframes the depressing situation he, he, he he's confronted with with a forward-looking what question. What 
is God going to do about the situation to bring about the good he desires in his creation? And according to Romans chapter 8, we are part of that equation in bringing about the new creation in the dark places of our world. And finally, and last, and this is where, you know, in the book of Acts, we find this wonderful thing as well. They're confronted, they're confronted with another groaning of creation moment. There was a, a, a famine, and it's being predicted by God's prophet Agabus. And as he predicts the, that a famine is about to, about to come, uh, the conve conventional wisdom probably would have been to ask the question, who is sinning that God has sent, is about to send this plague on us. And instead of asking that question, notice what, the, uh, what the, the, the disciples, the church did in those days. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And the disciples, see, look what they do. The disciples determined, according to his ability, to send relief to the brethren who lived in Judea. Three quick things. They determined what was, what was going to be the problem. And they determined what are we going to do about it. And then uh, the third thing is, who are we going to send for us? That is the Jesus-centered our Jesus-centered response to the pandemic. To be his eyes, his feet, his hands. To be his presence where it is dark. To be his presence where there's a lot of pain. And you might say to yourself, well, Pastor, you're just talking all, you're all talking about just the social gospel. What about the real gospel? And I'm here to tell you, that dichotomy should never have been made. There's no dichotomy between the social gospel and the gospel. They're one and the same. Shame on us for thinking that this is only social gospel. Only social gospel. Where would the gospel be if the people of God aren't willing to be discomforted. And you, and you say, look, uh, I'm so, uh, I'm, I'm getting excited again, so I need to breathe. History, there's a, I, I want to end with this, with this, all right? I'm, I'm not going to uh, do a little harangue here. There's a book we all need to read. And it's a book, um, it's a, it's a little bit of a heavy read, but anyway, it, it, it's, it's fine. It's, uh, it was written by, um, in 1996. Um, oh, I lost my place. Where is that now? Uh, by Rodney Spark. That's the, that's, that's the name. Rodney Spark. Um, where he traces the history of the growth of Christianity especially throughout the, uh, the, the first four or five centuries of the Christian era. And you know <clears throat> that one of the big factors for the growth of, of, the, of, of, the, of Christianity was because 
um, there was a famine in 165 AD, the one that I just described to you, the very, one of the very last top 10 uh, pandemic that happened in the Roman Empire. You know what the Christians did? They didn't stand idly by saying, one more sign of the end. I told you, repent. What did they do? They cared for those that were afflicted by the plague. They went in. A lot of them suffered for it and even died because of it. But you know what happened? The people in the Roman Empire, well, you know, by the way, it also killed, it also killed the, the, uh, the, uh, the Roman Emperor of the day. But it caused people to start noticing that there's something different about these people. What is it about these people that they would care for the dying they don't even know? That they would put up with this just to reduce the chances that perhaps I am a carrier of the virus, I don't even know it, and I don't have any signs. Why is it that they do that? And then they realize that it's because Jesus told them to do that. And they came into the church by the droves. And the church grew because the church did not ask why. The church asked what. And they went to work with God. And the promise of the Spirit enabling them was fulfilled over and over and over and over and over again. And the church grew by leaps and bounds. Do you want to evangelize? God just gave us the biggest opportunity of our life. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for including us in your plan to reach out to the world. That as the world groans and as we groan with the world, your promise, Lord, is that your spirit will be there to groan right along with us and help us to be your sons and daughters, to be the new creation where your new creation has not yet showed up. In Jesus' name, amen.